This is Walter Day, the guy in the referee shirt, and you're listening to Atari Bites. Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 119. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. I hope that your spring is going well. hope that you're having a lovely day. I am chilling here in the podcast studio. I am resting up from my long day at Six Flags Great America or whatever it's called, Six Flags over Miami, Six Flags to your heart, uh, I don't know, Six Flags something, near Chicago, where I was at yesterday. Got up super early. My kid had an orchestra, school orchestra competition in the morning, and my wife and I got this great idea. Hey, our other kid would like to go to Six Flags, because that's where the orchestra was going after the uh, competition, which they won, by the way. So we got this great idea. Hey, We'll follow the bus up there and go watch the competition, and then we can go to Six Flags, too. And then we found out what time they were leaving. The bus was leaving here at 4 in the morning. So, yeah, it was a very full day. We're all very tired and broke. Also, uh, it ain't cheap to go to Six Flags for the day. Between tickets and parking and food and souvenirs, our cost was probably pretty close to what I spent to spend the weekend at a hotel and food and so forth at Midwest Gaming Classic a couple weeks back. I haven't put a pencil to it, but I'm a little scared to uh, see if that's confirmed. I'm pretty sure it was close to the same cost. But you know, when you got kids, what are you going to do? You're certainly not going to retire because they made you bankrupt. Alright, well, back to Atari stuff. Uh, although, as I record this, I am drinking out of my new Headless Bugs Bunny Six Flags coffee mug. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, if not disturbing. That whole shelf full of, well, actually more than one of the gift shops of these headless Looney Tunes characters that you could drink out of. It makes me think of, you know, some sort of bizarre alternate reality where the Looney Tunes are running around the fields of medieval battlefields, ancient battlefields where, you know, Alexander the Great rips off his enemies' heads and drinks the blood of his foes. For all you Alexander the Great lovers, let me be clear, I don't know that he ever actually did that. But that's basically what's going on here. Uh, Bugs is headless, you pour the coffee down into his torso, and enjoy. So, here I go, I'm enjoying. (sighs) Refreshing. Anyway, let's do some news. Hey, how about a Mad Mike Hughes update? Mad Mike, of course, is the limo driver in California on a quest. Eh, Don Quixote type quest, if you like to uh, prove that the Earth is flat. He's doing this by building his own rocket. He did what I guess was a test launch. I think it was supposed to be the real launch, but uh, I think he's sort of treating it as a test launch now because it didn't go so great. March sometime, he launched his uh, homemade rocket like 1,800 feet in the air. It crashed, a bunch of pieces broke off. 
he got hurt a little bit, I guess. And since then, he hasn't been doing a whole lot except selling things through his Facebook page. You can get autographed photos of the rocket. You can get pieces of the rocket. You can get pieces of the parachute that helped the rocket uh, float to Earth, although not particularly gently. Supposedly now, I read a thing on April 23rd that he's got a bio, a documentary about him, I guess, coming out in August, which, coincidentally, is also for sale. Let's see if there's anything new going on. April 28th, I stopped by to visit Swede Savage gravesite today here in San Bernardino. I am still amazed by his story. And he has a picture of the uh, headstone, Swede Savage, David Earl Savage Jr., Champion, our daddy, my Sweden, died in 1973. Okay, I don't know who that is. But, you know, apparently somebody very important to Mad Mike. I'm sure other people too. I just am in pleading ignorance here. I don't know who that is. Okay, the commenters help out with that. He was injured during the 1973 Indy 500 crashed. With a f- he crashed apparently and died of his injuries shortly after that. So that's unfortunate. And then there's a bunch of hostile comments after that about whether or not this really constitutes being a hero. I won't get into that because I don't know who that is. Also, it really doesn't matter because I just want to know when he's going to prove the earth is flat because I have a whole huge bag of dragon chow that I want to get rid of. So as soon as we can find those dragons that live at the edge of the earth, as we all know from uh, medieval maps of the flat earth, that's what lives there, then I can unload this dragon chow. So Mike, get on that. All right, what else is new? I mentioned Bugs Bunny earlier in my headless Bugs Bunny mug. Since we're talking about cartoons, I happened upon an article on complex.com called The 50 Greatest Saturday Morning Cartoons. This came out in January 2018. Uh, Apparently it was originally published in 2012. When I was a kid, Saturday Morning Cartoons were uh, a huge deal. We didn't have, of course, Cartoon Network or Internet or YouTube or anything where you could find any cartoons you want at any time, uh, like now. Um, If you wanted to watch cartoons, they were on other times during the week, but Saturday morning, the networks pretty much set aside from like 6 in the morning until noon for just cartoons. Sometimes they would be ostensibly educational, but mostly they were just things like The Super Friends or Captain Caveman or uh, occasionally there would be a, a video game inspired cartoon like Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or you know some of those. So this article takes a shot at ranking them. I liked... My lineup was typically Super Friends, Looney Tunes. I actually liked the Happy Days cartoon that was on for a while. Basically, uh, I don't even know how it, the pre- how the premise got set up, but basically Ralph Malf, uh, Richie, and the Fonz end up leaving 1957 in a time machine. I don't remember how they do that. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, it was as bad as it sounds, but there it was. I think for a brief time they did a uh, Laverne and Shirley in the Army cartoon also. But that didn't last as long. And I watched that too. Uh, I am not ashamed to admit. I watched the Donkey Kong and Pac-Man cartoons too. Although looking back, they really weren't very good. What else did I like? I mentioned Looney Tunes. I don't know. Maybe that was pretty much my lineup that I can remember right now. Uh, If you guys have any fond memories of Saturday morning cartoons, let me know. So this article, see if any of those things are on this article. I won't read them all, of course. They put at number 50, Pokemon. Syndication 1997 to the present. See, that, I was an adult by then, so I never got into the Pokemon thing. Uh, 49 was Hammer Man from 1991. Yeah, again, uh, I was too old for that. 
Harlem Globetrotters, 1970 to 71. Oh, that reminds me, only because there was a Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island movie. For a while, there was Gilligan's Planet, a spinoff of Gilligan's Island, where the uh, castaways find a spaceship and land, uh, crash land on an alien planet. But I never watched this Harlem Globetrotters cartoon. I'm not quite old enough for that. Let's skip ahead to the top ten. I've been going through pretty quick. I've probably missed some on here that I like. Uh, the Real Ghostbusters. I was a teenager by the time this was on, but I've watched some of it as an adult. Henry had a brief fling with the original uh, Real Ghostbusters cartoon. Uh, he kind of liked that. Spider-Man is represented on here. Beetlejuice. The Tick. Jim Henson's Muppet Babies. Uh, again, I was too old for this, but I remember it was a huge deal. Uh, so huge they're bringing it back. Richie Rich. Uh, X-Men. Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Wow. NBC and ABC were so invested in this, they've tried to bring it back a bunch of times. According to this article, it ran on NBC from 85 to 89, then on ABC from 89 to 90, and then in syndication from 90 to 91. So for six years, they tried to push this thing on us. Garfield and Friends. Henry's been watching that just recently. Uh, he really got into binge-watching binge uh, Garfield. Levin with SpongeBob SquarePants, which is still running, of course. All right, number 10, Doug, which ran on Nickelodeon from 91 to 96 and on ABC from 96 to 2001. Uh, I've heard of that one. Never really watched it. Super Friends, yes. Now we're getting into stuff I know. Uh, it only ran from 80 to 82, although they point out it ran under many different names. Challenge of the Super Friends, the Superpowers Team, Galactic Guardians, but uh, Super Friends was the original name. DC Universe icons, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and shoehorned in lames. Wonder Twins, uh, Gleek, Eldorado. I remember the Wonder Twins and Gleek, and yeah, they definitely were the weak point of the Super Friends, but I don't remember Eldorado. They all battled baddies and took hydraulic shape-shifting to new heights, we guess. Although, form of Ice Cube doesn't seem much like heights to us. Eight was Animaniacs, which I never really watched. That was a 90s thing. The Smurfs. I will admit I watched the Smurfs as a kid. Uh, Scooby-Doo. Ah, I forgot about Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I was a big Scooby-Doo kid, uh, too. I uh, ran from the original, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Ran on CBS from 69 to 70, but of course they went on to have many other versions of that show. Here, oh man, here we go. Wait, did I skip some? At number five, and I'm shocked it's only number five, The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show, CBS, 78 to 85. Yeah. I'll drink to that. Headless Bugs Bunny. Batman on Fox from 92 95. I watched a little bit of that. It was pretty good. Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. This is a timely reference. Just this past week as I record this, uh, Mr. Cosby has been <coughs> found to have done, done some naughty things. He's looking at uh, 30 years in prison, potentially, although I really doubt he'll do much of if any of that. I expect an appeal to be coming. Number two... DuckTales, which was a good one. DuckTales is back now with, I might add, David Tennant, the actor who played the 10th Doctor in Doctor Who during the voice of Scrooge McDuck. Thank you very much. And the number one Saturday morning cartoon, according to this article, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Syndication, 1987 to 90. CBS from 87 to 96. I never got into the turtles, I'll be honest. I tried. I wanted to like them. I didn't dislike them. I liked playing the uh, arcade game. Uh, but I never really went gaga for the turtles. Uh, Henry has tried, I think, at times, too, to really get excited about the turtles, but he's kind of had the same reaction that I did, that 
seems like they should be cool, but yeah, we just don't, we just don't get it. Alright, so that's kind of fun. Not really a video game thing. Oh wait, here, let me see. Like I said, I'm not going to read this whole thing. The, I, maybe, I, you know, to make this somewhat relevant to a gaming podcast, maybe I should see if there are any video, video game related cartoons on this list. Dungeons and Dragons, I guess not really a video game related cartoon, but I, yeah, I watched that one too. New Adventures of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll. Yeah, I watched that. Sonic the Hedgehog. Not an Atari game, of course, but it is a, a tie-in with a video game. Nope, Pac-Man and Donkey Kong didn't make the list. Sorry, guys. Alright, what else is going on? One of the other podcasts I listen to, which is not a video game-related podcast. Shocking, I know. It's a show called Overdue. Uh, these two guys, every week, uh, they, they present a different book. Could be a classic, could be a newer title. Uh, one of them reads the book, the other one does research on the author and the reception of the book, and then they talk about it. Uh, what they liked about the book, what they didn't like about the book, that kind of stuff. It's kind of entertaining. Uh, recently, they did an episode on Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, uh, which is a, mo- a book that came out, I believe, in 2011. The movie, of course, is out now. just came out recently. It's set in the near future, sort of this dystopian world where everything's pretty bleak, Everybody's poor, but everybody somehow has virtual reality headsets, and they escape into this massive, you know, World of Warcraft times ten world called the Oasis, and live out, you know, their fantasies in there. And they also do like real world stuff in this virtual world, like education and things. It's just full of '80s video game references and other '80s pop culture stuff, and they. Uh, so that's the book they talked about. But what caught my attention related to this podcast is they mention the Billy Mitchell scandal recently. From their brief, it's just a brief conversation because that's really not the topic of the book or the topic of the episode, but they do hit upon, you know, the 80s video games and, and what they were like and, and then this Billy Mitchell thing with uh, having the scores taken down from Twin Galaxies. It's clear from their conversation that they that they like uh, old video games. They're in their 30s, probably. I know they mentioned they were born in the 80s. So they're certainly familiar with you know, the classic video games like that, but I don't know that they're necessarily steeped in gamer culture. So, But they kind of hit on it. It was kind of weird and kind of cool to hear them, hear this totally non-video game-related podcast mention this, this thing. So if you like books, if you like entertaining conversation about books, Go check out Overdue. That was a totally unsolicited promotion uh, for their podcast. All right, last thing, then we'll get on to the game for this week. Last week, we talked about the Rampage movie. Speaking of other mediums for video games, uh, the Rampage movie is still stomping through theaters. We did a, a review and a discussion of it last week on the show, and I got some feedback from Donald Crosswhite. He is at Crosswhite Design on Twitter. Uh, he mentioned, he made a couple of comments. One, he says that... Oh, actually, he wasn't talking about the Rampage movie. Sorry, he was he was posting... He was responding to another post that I put up. Um, I, I posted a picture. I was out and about uh, traveling yesterday in Illinois, like I said, for that, uh, for that orchestra competition. And at the school we were at, I glanced up out when we were standing outside, and they had... It looked like post-it notes... They had used post-it notes to make a rendering of a ghost from Pac-Man in one of the windows of the school. And I took a picture of it and, uh, and posted it. And Donald Crossway responded. 
that's what's great about the 8-bit world. Let someone show that creativity with games like Call of Duty. It's just not the same thing. And I agree. Whether you're talking about, you know, making Pac-Man ghosts out of post-its or making a movie like Rampage out of a game called Rampage, modern games are whole interactive movies. They give you the story right there. You don't have to imagine what the world looks like or what the people are like or why the monsters do what they do. So part of the fun is filling in the blanks. You know, some of these old games, you don't even know what you're looking at on screen. You just have to kind of guess, and, and that's part of the fun. You're using your imagination. So I absolutely agree with him on that, and that's part of the appeal. That's part of why I do this podcast. I couldn't do this podcast talking about modern Xbox games, for example, because the story's already there. But I like looking at, well... You know, like the game we're going to talk about today, Sorcerer. There's not a whole lot on screen. I just kind of kind of fill it in. Or, you know, a game like, uh, oh, I don't know, Firefox. Or Laser Blast. Or something that's, or Circus Atari. You know, something that's, or combat. Something that's pretty basic, what you're getting on screen. You just have to guess why you're doing what you're doing. So thanks for that, Donald. Oh, Donald also responded to my pretty shameless fawning over Junior Mint's candies because they're very refreshing. And he agrees with me. So he notes that uh, they're his favorite movie treat, uh, as they should be. Popcorn and Junior Mint's together are delightful. So, you know, I don't want to put words or Junior Mint's in Donald's mouth, but I think that he, Junior Mint's company, would agree with me that you really, really need to sponsor this podcast. All right. Well, thank you for that, Donald. If you have comments about movies or video games or candy contact me at the show uh, ataribytes2016 at gmail.com or hit me up on social media alright well we've screwed around long enough why don't we talk about this week's game this week's game is Sorcerer from Mythicon 1983 the manual tells us many centuries ago the earth was ruled by sorcerers and wizards they possess mystical powers capable of both good and evil. The most respected influences in the land were from the good sorcerers. This fact continually disturbed the evil wizards, and they eventually decided to use the power to uh, to conquer the countryside and enslave its people. Boo! They devised a plan to systematically eliminate the good sorcerers by sending wave after wave of diabolical creatures to ravage the world. As the bravest of the good sorcerers, you have been asked to destroy these forces and save the planet. As a reward for your bravery, whenever you overcome and destroy a creature, you will receive a treasure. Knowing your bravery, the wizards have done everything within their power to keep you from succeeding. They don't believe you will survive the first three waves of evil, but just in case you do, they have several surprises waiting. Only you can discover through bravery and talent how evil they can become. To give you more power over the forces of evil, the good sorcerers have provided a magical flying platform. Why don't they just give you a bigger gun? Anyway, when you start on your journey, or a a bigger gun, or like another sorcerer to help you. That would be nice. Anyway, when you start on your journey, you should first catch this elusive platform. Why not make the platform bigger? Or, instead of a platform, how about like a tank? I'm never going to get through this manual, am I? Anyway... You can continue without it, but only the foolish would dare to do so. Once on the flying platform, you can go anywhere on the screen to avoid or destroy the enemy. The good sorcerers have also given you four lives to use against the forces of evil. Why four? 
Why not a million? Or, how about this? Why not just make you invincible? Uh, we're using the joystick for this one. You apparently also can use the ball controller, but I don't have one. I know, I've been saying for however long I've been doing this podcast that I'm going to get a ball controller, but I just never seem to get around to it. Uh, the difficulty switches are of no use in this game. The game automatically becomes more difficult as your score increases. Move the jo- sorcerer left or right on the screen. In the first screen, moving the joystick north, make the sorcerer jump to catch the flying platform. After getting on the flying platform, joystick moves the sorcerer in all directions, and when the flying platform gets close to the ground, it dissolves and the sorcerer may run left or right. Moving the joystick up will cause the flying platform to reappear. Alright. The red fire button on the joystick fires in the direction you're facing. It is not possible to move left off the screen. All additional screens are to the right. Well, fine. Ball controllers worked very well with Sorcerer. Higher scores should be possible. Wow. Did Mythicon have stock in the ball controller production company? Although, as I think about it, having played this game a little bit today, I I think they're right. I think a ball controller probably would work better for this. But as I said, already once this episode, I don't have one. The game select switch allows you to choose the level of difficulty and whether one or two players will be playing. Practice mode is a one-player game, no scoring, unlimited lives. Level one, one player, scoring for successfully shooting forces of evil. Additional scores for picking up treasures. Level one, two players, play alternates, uh, alternates starting with the left controller. Level two, one player, forces of evil move much faster. Level two, two players is the other option. You begin play by pressing the game reset button or pressing the red fire button on your controller. After each loss of a life, a small controller symbol will appear at the top of the screen. Pressing the red fire button on your controller will restart the game. Scoring is done by hitting the forces of evil with an energy charge and picking up treasures. Each time you hit a force of evil with your energy charge, you get 30 points. When they disappear, a treasure will materialize. Touching the treasure gives you 80 points. These are odd values. I don't know why. They seem sort of arbitrary numbers. Successfully moving through the lightning storm will cause a treasure to come out of the sky. Don't forget to pick up each treasure since once you have moved on to the next screen, you can't go back. I don't know if I mentioned it in the field report, but it's a little disconcerting. You can't actually see the score on the screen. Uh, For an old Atari game, that's kind of weird. I don't mind it, I guess. It just seems odd. In addition to the life you're currently using, lives are displayed at the top of the screen. When the game begins, you have four. The remaining lives are displayed. When no lives uh, remain, you only have the one life you are using. And what else can I tell you? After 4,000 points are earned, surprising things start to happen to one set of the forces of evil. With each additional 1,000 points, the change continues, making the game harder and harder. Only truly great game players will discover what finally happens to the forces of evil before you reach the ultimate score of 9,999. The second level of difficulty has the same features as the first level, but all the forces of evil are much more evil. Sorcerer by Mythicon offers tremendous variety in the types of game, uh, types of enemies you as the sorcerer will encounter. As you get better, you will open screen after screen of additional forces of evil. As you get into the higher score levels, the forces of evil continue their changes, making it even harder to keep moving on. By automatically making the game more interesting as your skills improve, you should get much more enjoyment from Sorcerer than many of the games available today. Wow, take that every other Atari game. The music in Sorcerer was created especially for Mythicon. Well, that's unfortunate. You will notice that as you destroy an enemy, the music changes. Yay! As soon as you encounter another screen containing forces of evil, the music will want you, warn you to be cautious. Also, it could make your ears bleed. I added that part. I don't really like the music. There's a one-year limited warranty on the game. 
I wonder if I, I have missed that one year. Oh well. And that is how you play Sorcerer. Mindspring.com observed that pressing select allows the player to skip over the practice game and move on to the scoring versions. I think the manual told us that. There are five basic components that the player must face during this game, as well as a lightning storm that heralds the beginning of each new wave. Zapped enemies bring 30 points apiece. In order of appearance, they are, as this guy names them, the uh, wizards, the black and red figures that tend to stay near the ground, flaming masks, uh, they are more elusive than wizards, floating around the center screen. That's actually a good way to describe them. I couldn't figure out what they look like, but that's a pretty good uh, guess. Cats, these appear after a thousand points and are scored, behave much like the masks. Snakes, abstract squiggly creatures that appear after 2,000 points. They tend to keep low. Cyclops, evasive smiling faces that enter the picture following a score of 3,000. The treasures are a golden cup, a treasure chest, an amulet, a gold bar. Critique, Sorcerer has several things going for it. The graphics are probably above average for a 2600 game. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. That's probably a pretty good observation. The different types of creatures and treasures keep things interesting, and the game adds a new twist for every thousand points the player scores. There's also a haunting musical theme that is linked to the action in a clever way. Mmm. Yeah, that's probably true. But it's super annoying. On the other hand, this reviewer says, catching the flying platform quickly becomes an irritating ritual. In addition, simple strategies that work early in the game generally work all too well. Later on, many gamers will be able to reach the highest attainable score after one or two evenings of play, although there is a second faster level that can provide some extra challenge. Sorcerer mixes elements of games as different as Pitfall and Demon Attack, and fans of either of these may find some short-term enjoyment in it. The game lacks the complexity and challenge of these two, however, and the gamers of 1983 might have been best advised to try before buying. Videogamecritic.com Noted that Mythicon's track record is fairly lackluster, but Sorcerer is a pleasant surprise. In many ways, this is, in some ways, this rare game is a gem. Sorcerer's sprites are chunky but smoothly animated and multicolored. The action is fast and the controls are responsive. It's definitely a challenge, and Sorcerer holds more surprises than your average 2600 cartridge. That's a better review than I expected. Alright, so we've been throwing around a lot of magical terms here. Sorcerer and wizard and whatnot. So what's the difference, really? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. English.stackexchange.com pondered this question. What is the difference between sorcerer and wizard? And their response was, I know that the nomenclature is unclear. However, the common usage seems to indicate a wizard is born an ordinary mortal, learns magic and spells from books. A sorcerer is born a sorcerer, but needs to learn spells, possibly a certain type, from a master. Difference between.net, which apparently is a real site, notes that there is much confusion about this. The first thing that most readers, music, uh, moviegoers, gamers, and other persons from different walks of life will notice is the apprentice. Wizards are usually pictured as having a long beard, old age, uh, wearing simple attire, while sorcerers are seen as attractive beings of magic that are beautiful and usually more good looking than the former. Sorcerers in both factual and fantasy aspect usually appear younger than the seasoned wizards. According to other sources, sorcerers are said to be able to draw out the mystic energies surrounding them and from within them. They are inherently talented persons of magic that are adept to controlling or channeling magical energy. That's why sorcerers are dubbed as natural spellcasters, because of their talent in the magical arts. Other races, not only human, can become a sorcerer. Wizard is a term derived from Anglo-Saxon, wizard, uh, which means the wise one. They are often depicted as beings that do a formal study about spells in order to be able to cast them. 
the word sorcerer, by contrast, is Old French uh, in origin, sorcier, which also means the same thing as its other counterpart. So wizards learn their craft uh, from long hours of study, and sorcerers are more inherently adept. There you go. Hope that clears that up. But here's the thing. If that's true, if a wizard is basically just a human who becomes magical through study, isn't everyone at Hogwarts a muggle? Hermione, you're not alone. Yay. And of course, we'd be remiss in talking about sorcerers and wizards without mentioning the sorcerer's apprentice from Fantasia. Now, I mentioned this, and then I just discovered just recently in doing my research, <laughs> research, that's funny, for this episode that there actually is an Atari 2600 Sorcerer's Apprentice game. But, you know, I've never played it. I don't know if I'll ever play it. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you about the Sorcerer's Apprentice right now. It was the third and most famous segment in Disney's Fantasia, and it was the only returning segment in the sequel to Fantasia 2000 based on the poem of the same name by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and the musical piece, it stars Mickey Mouse as the titular apprentice. This composition was the first to be recorded for, for the film by an ad hoc, 100-piece, hand-picked orchestra of Los Angeles-based session musicians, directed by Stokowski, conducted by Stokowski. The recording was done in January 1938 at the Pathy Studios in Culver City. Scene starts with sorcerer Yen Sid working on his magic and the apprentice Mickey doing the chores. After some magic, Yen Sid puts his hat down and retires to his chambers. When he leaves, Mickey puts the hat on and tries magic, uh, tries out magic on a broom. Commands the broom to carry buckets of water to fill a cauldron. Mickey, Mickey is satisfied with this and sits down and falls asleep. He dreams that he was a powerful sorcerer on top of a pinnacle commanding stars, plants, and water. Wakes up to find the room is filled with water. But since the cauldron is overflowing, the broom is not stopping with filling it. And Mickey tries to stop the broom, but no success. The broom walks right over him, bringing more and more water. The water is rising. Mickey, in desperation, grabs a huge axe and chops the broom into pieces. But then the little split pieces begin to come to life and turn into more brooms with buckets of water. Mickey tries to get the water out, but finds there are too many brooms. He looks up a spell in a spell book to try and stop them. But just then, Yen Sid comes in, sees everything that's going on, waves his hands, and uh, clears out all the water. He glares at Mickey, who gives him back his hat and the broom, picks up the buckets, and starts going slowly back to his chores. And after the piece is over, Mickey runs to Leopold Stokowski, and they congratulate each other, and Mickey ex exits, and Leopold waves goodbye. Alright, well, after the break, we whip out our wand and take a wizard into the land of the sorcerers. Man, this show is classy. I feel like playing an Atari game. Uh, what's this then? Sorcerer, huh? Oh, let me just put it in here. Okay. Oh, look! There's a guy who sort of looks like the guy from Berserk, except with a snappy red jumpsuit on. And, oh, look! There's Evil Otto. Ooh, Evil Otto. What's he doing here? This must be a Berserk sequel. I love Berserk. This is great. Wait. The guy in the red suit has a wand. Hey, quit waving your wand around. Put that thing away. I don't think this is a Berserk sequel. Uh-oh. 
here's the thing about Sorcerer. This music? Super annoying! Uh, I don't know why there's a big white cloud at the top of the screen. I don't know why Evilado's up there. I don't know why you have to hop on this stupid flying disc. Uh, I did just shoot those three guys by shooting one of the guys to get the treasure. And I did it again with those. Now here's some, uh, multicolored pandas trying to shoot me. I don't know what those are supposed to be. Wow, I'm actually doing better playing this game talking to you than I was in my practice round. Uh, what's with the uh, javelin that keeps falling from the big fluffy cloud? I mean, I can't touch it because I've been reduced to ash trying to do that. Uh, which, by the way, is... There, he just got me. It's kind of a cool effect. Um, when Red Jumpsuit Guy gets killed, I, I kind of like that he gets reduced to a pile of ash. That's kind of a neat effect. Treasure again. I've started over. What are those sort of blue things? I'm very confused. There's the multicolored pandas with octopus legs. And the Roombas. I'm not sure what those are supposed to be. Alright, I've got a flying disc. I mean, I get that the flying disc lets you go up in the air, but why make that a thing? I don't know. Evil Auto's weirding me out, man. Uh, do this one more time. I don't see a whole lot of sorcery going on. I mostly just see a guy shooting a laser. Uh, like any other Atari game. I kind of wanted lightning bolts and people disappearing and stuff. I'm not getting that. Alright, that's enough of that. I am holstering my wand and sending you back to the studio. So here's the thing about Sorcerer. I don't really like this game. Now, I don't hate this game. Just... And I haven't spent an evening or two with it, like one of the reviewers said you would need to do to master it, but it just doesn't feel like there's much here, and I got pretty bored pretty quick. Uh, the music is super annoying. I don't understand why Evil Auto is here. I don't understand. I don't really understand what the point is. Yes, I, I know you're supposed to collect the treasure, but there's nothing in this game that screams wizards and sorcerers to me. It's just a guy, it, it's, it's like a, it's like Pitfall without any interesting stuff in it. So yeah, I was a little disappointed. Look, again, I don't hate it, I don't think it's an actively bad game. I just don't find it very interesting. But hey, I mentioned Evil Otto. Why is he in this game? He sits there at the top of the screen for the whole game. And your sorcerer does look vaguely, to me anyway, like the guy from Berserk. Well, Evil Otto is there. I don't know about the guy looking like the Berserk guy. But Evil Otto is there because Mythicon straight up stole the character from, uh, from Stern. Stern, of course, made Berserk, which features Evil Otto. Mythicon said, hey, Evil Auto's kind of cool. We want that. So they made uh, a version of it and put it in their game. As Everything2.com notes, Mythicon was a third-party producer of Atari 2600 games. Uh, they sold games at way below standard market prices to try and build customers. But this reviewer says the games were terrible. They charged $9.95 each, but they were so awful that even $1.99 was too much. 
they usually uh, release three games together, but they were all actually reworked versions of the same game. They were quickly programmed and quickly forgotten. Uh, the only really noteworthy thing is they released a space game called Star Fox before Nintendo did, and probably could have sued the pants off Nintendo if the company had survived that long. Mythicon games. Firefly, a bad bug-related spaceship game. Sorcerer, destroy wave after wave of evil creatures. And Star Fox, yet another bad space game. Mythicon is also known for the fact that they copied the evil auto character from Berserk into all of their games. All three Mythicon games have evil auto in them, and he matches the evil auto from the Atari 2600 version of Berserk right down to the last pixel. You couldn't do that sort of thing today, the lawyers would have a field day. It was companies like Mythicon, this reviewer writes, that caused the video game crash of 83. There were literally dozens of these little crappy companies selling their horrible little games, but the market couldn't support them all, and even good manufacturers had trouble staying in business. I don't know if any of that's true. I think it's an interesting observation. It is weird that Evil Auto is here. I, I don't know if Evil Auto even plays a part in the game at any point, but in the parts that I played, he just kind of sits there uh, with no involvement whatsoever. So that's just weird. Alright, so let's get on to the story. Sorcerers and wizards battling each other. And where in the modern world do we like to battle each other? In court, of course, right? Everybody wants to sue everybody. So, I, I imagine the uh, the treasure hunting and the sorcery and whatnot going on in this game is just a, a, a metaphor for a legal battle. Here we go. At the end of a torch-lit alley, past the intersection of Diagon Alley and Nothing Up My Sleeve Lane, sits the law offices of Merlin, Merlin, and Merlin, mystical attorneys at Magical Law. Merlin was actually just one dude, the famous wizard turned lawyer. He used a spell to turn himself into three dudes. It made him more efficient at work, filing legal briefs, and between the sheets, wearing briefs. Wink, wink. Anyway, Merlin was prepping his client, a former sorcerer's apprentice. Their case was going to sorcery court tomorrow, destined, perhaps, to set new magical law precedent. If they won, Merlin's client would be the first sorcerer in the land to ever receive wizard compensation for services rendered. Tell it to me again, Merlin said, polishing his pointy hat. The apprentice did so. Merlin's hat perched tall above his beaming face. The next morning, court attendant Turtle, Patronus, called sorcery court to order. All rise, she said. Oh, you did. Stop levitating. No magic's allowed in the courtroom. Merlin and the apprentice floated back into their chairs. The attorneys for the wizard compensation board, Samantha Stevens, turned her old gray head slowly toward the attendant. Dark, all-seeing eyes regarded her. The turtle was nervous. Plumes of smoke wafted up from nowhere, encircling the wizard attorney's head. Small lightning strikes cut through the gloom that suddenly pervaded the room. But all at once, Samantha Stevens flashed a winning smile. The courtroom brightened immediately. But it wouldn't last. Lightning flashed. A chill ran through the courtroom. The inky void that was the judge appeared on the bench. Merlin's hat drooped slightly. A voice that seemed to both climb out of the void and compete with it for presence in the room said, The court will hear opening statements. Merlin stood and said, Your Honor, the sorcerers and wizards of our realm have been warring since the mountains were young. The wizards have long held the power and the purse strings. Many good people have done the wizards' bidding with no recognition and very little compensation. The evidence will show that the sorcerers and the wizards' skills differ less than we perhaps like to think, and they should be compensated as such. Thanks. Samantha Stevens stood. I'm a humble witch, she said. Neither a sorcerer nor a wizard, but I've known many wizards. 
I've seen the decades and centuries wizards spend learning their craft, and some of them succeed only to have their successes taken away, be it job loss or illness or sorcerer betrayal. The sorcerers, born with innate ability, cannot lose it. We're not here to hash out the wizard-sorcerer conflict. What we are here to do is recognize the role of the Wizard Compensation Board. They went to Hogwarts? Oh, hi. Henry's here. Rabbit. They might have gone to Hogwarts, yes. Oh. Can you get the number? I'll see what I can do. Oh, good. What we are here to do is recognize... I'm going to a frog. I don't want to be a frog. Yeah. He just said he was going to turn me into a frog. Yeah, sure you don't. If I rib it through the next episode, you'll know why. So, Samantha Stevens said, What we are here to do is recognize the role of the Wizard Compensation Board to support the humble mortals who need our help most, not to prop up the entitled sorcerers. Thank you. Samantha Stevens turned briefly into a three-headed dragon, then back into an attorney for the WCB. The court attendant was drawn into the judge like starlight being sucked into a black hole. Guess they'd be hiring a new court attendant later. The judge seemed to burp and said, Mr. Merlin, call your first witness. Merlin swallowed his grape hubba bubba bubblegum. This week's episode sponsored by hubba bubba. But Merlin rallied quickly and called his first and only witness, the apprentice. The testimony was as follows. Merlin, please state your name. Apprentice. Uh, Mick. Apprentice of who? Harry Potter? No. Oh. Harry Potter is not in this story. You. Henry is stunned. I know. Anyway, Merlin, and what is your occupation? Apprentice. Well, until recently, I was a sorcerer's apprentice. Merlin, and what were your duties? Apprentice. I assisted the sorcerer in maintenance and janitorial tasks around the lab, also retrieving ingredients for the sorcerer's potions. Merlin, potions? Like wizard potions? Samantha Stevens. Objection. Asking the apprentice to speculate about the definition of a wizard. The judge considered this, well, probably, with the blank nothingness of a face, he could actually have been sleeping. The judge, overruled. Merlin, let's talk about that. Why were you studying wizarding potions? Apprentice, sorcerers have an innate ability to do magic, but they still need to learn the spells and potions. The apprentice is the one who summarizes the details of all those spells. Merlin, like a wizard. Apprentice, well, the sorcerers and the wizards don't really get along but I guess they kind of do the same things. Merlin, how did your sorcerer feel about wizards? Samantha Stevens made a talking chicken appear, who squawked, Objection! Then disappeared. The sigh that rumbled forth from the depths of the judge spilled Merlin's cup of water. As he dabbed at his scrolls, the judge said, Sustained. Merlin, never mind. You said you used to work for the sorcerer. When were you terminated? Or were you terminated? Apprentice, I was. Merlin, Why? Apprentice, there was an incident. Merlin, explain. Apprentice, I used a spell to animate some brooms to clean up the lab so I can rest. But, so I could rest, but instead ended up flooding the lab. Merlin, and you were fired? Apprentice, yes. Merlin, the lab was washed out, wasn't it? Apprentice, very much so. Merlin, and that was one of your tasks. Apprentice, yes. So you were fired for doing your job? Apprentice, yes. Merlin, are you in financial need of the WCB assistance? 
Apprentice, very much. Merlin, are you a sorcerer? Apprentice, no, no I'm not. Merlin, no further questions. Merlin rubbed his hands together, little sparks igniting the scrolls on his table. But there was still a puddle of water on the table, so the sparks were quickly extinguished. Samantha Stevens stood. Well, levitated, actually. Samantha Stevens. You were a sorcerer's apprentice, were you not? Not a wizard's apprentice. Apprentice. That was my job title, yes. Samantha Stevens. Used a spell to animate those brooms, correct? Apprentice. Yes. Samantha Stevens. Yes. Like a sorcerer. Apprentice. But it failed. Like a wizard. My mother was a third-level wizard. My father was a produce manager at a corner grocery. Never used any magic, but knew a good nectarine when he saw one. I studied hard and got the sorcerer's job on merit, not by birth. Samantha Stevens rocked back on her eels. Not her heels. Actual eels. What? Before they returned to the dark realm from which they arrived. Andy, not eels? Magic eels. Henry's questioning my story. Yeah, she was standing on magical eels. That's eel abuse. That's eel abuse? Yeah. Well, they were magical eels. They liked it. But then Samantha Stevens rallied a bit. She said... So, you're a fraud. Apprentice. Well, ma'am, you said you're a witch, representing the WCB, so are you a fraud? Samantha Stevens turned, literally turning into a plume of blue hostility. The courtroom quickly erupted in a magical personification of defiance. Court adjourned. A week later, the court's verdict arrived at Merlin's law office by winged text message. A week after that, the apprentice began receiving monthly wizarding compensation payments that sustained him until he got a new job at the Sorcerer's Embassy in Wizlandia. At least until the wizards blew up the embassy. The war continues. And now, Atari Bytes Classics Theater presents The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, 1797. Gone's for once the old magician, with his countenance forbidding. I'm now master, I'm tactician. All his ghosts must do my bidding. Know his incantation, spell and gesture too. By my mind's creation, wonders shall I do. Flood impassive with persistence, from a distance want I rushing, and at last abundant massive, here into my basin, gushing. Come, old broom, for work get ready. Dress yourself, put on your tatters. You're, I know, a servant steady, and proficient in such matters. On two legs stand gravely, have a head, besides, with your pail now bravely, off and do take strides. Flood impassive with persistence, from a distance, want I rushing, and at last abundant, massive, here into my brain, gushing. Like a whirlwind he is going to the stream, and then in, like an engine he is throwing, water for my use. With flurry do I watch the steady, not a drop is spilled. Basin, bowls already are with water filled. Fool, unwitty, stop your going. Overflowing are the dishes. I forgot the charm, what pity. Now my words are empty. For the magic charm undoing, what I did, I have forgotten. Be a broom, be not renewing. Now your efforts, spell begotten. Still his work abhorrent, does the wretch resume. Where I look, a torrent threatens me with doom. No, no longer shall I suffer, you to offer bold defiance. I have brains, I am the stronger, and I shall enforce compliance. You, hell's miscreant abortion, is this house doomed to perdition? 
Signs I see in every portion of impending demolition. Servant, cursed and senseless, do obey my will. Be a broom defenseless, be a stick, stand still. Not impurely shall you ravage. Wait, you savage, I'll beset you with my hatchet opportunely. Shall I split your wood, I bet. There he comes again with water. Hear my soul for murder. Icles. First I stun and then I slaughter. That is good for beasts and witches. Well, he's gone and broken. Is the stick in two? He's not worth a token. Now I hope I do. Whoa, it is so. Both the broken parts betoken. One infernal servant's doubling. Whoa, it is so. Now do help me, powers eternal. Both are running, both are plotting, and with still increased persistence, hail and workshop they are flooding. Master, come to my assistance. Wrong I was in calling, spirits I avow, for I find them galling, cannot rule them now. Be obedient, broom be hiding, and subsiding, none should ever, but the master, when expedient, call you as a ghostly lover. Oh, by the way, I think I said 1797. That was actually written in 1779, translation by Paul Dyerson, 1878. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod and ComTech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, including, uh, well, you know this already, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, uh, on and on and on. But whatever you do, remember to whip up a spell to transport yourself over to iTunes and magically conjure a review to help the show appear in a puff of smoke before other iTunes listeners' eyes. And also remember to tell your wizarding friends about the show. You can also support support the show financially at the Atari Bytes Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes Go Play Some Old Games They've Missed You shirts at our Atari Bytes store on Zazzle.com which has the roll-off-the-tongue name of capital A, capital B, underscore pod, underscore store. The website is ataribytes.libsyn.com find show notes and social media and all sorts of stuff over there. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. You can like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram as well. Uh, Also, give a listen to my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, where you can get all of your animated and not-so-animated Peanuts gang needs. We talked about the TV specials, the movies, the comic strip, the merchandise, uh, Charles Schultz, the cartoonist. Uh, anything you want to know about Peanuts, we will probably cover it at some point on the podcast. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bites. It's Mother's Day. So in honor of all our mothers, we'll be playing a game called I Want My Mommy. Yep, it's a real thing. So, until next time, go call your mother, and then, go play some old games. They've missed you.